everybody, Marcus here. Just wanted to let you know about a new podcast I'm working on. It's called Omega Tau at omegataupodcast.net. And it's about all kinds of things, science and technology that I find interesting. First episode is on flying gliders. Episode number two is on uh, weather data measurement. Number three is on cancer research. Number four is on commercial space flight and spaceship one. And number five is about Earth rays around the world in a powerboat. Some of the episodes are German, some are English. There is a feed for everything and there is a separate feed for English episodes. So why don't you go to omegatowpodcast.net, download some episodes, let me know what you think. Thanks and have fun listening. Soft Engineering Radio, episode 119, DSLs in Practice with JP Tolvanen. This is Software Engineering Radio, the podcast for professional developers on the web at se-radio.net. SE Radio brings you relevant and detailed discussions and interviews on software engineering topics every 10 days. Thanks to our audience and the partners listed on our website for support. Hello, everybody, to this new episode of Software Engineering Radio. This episode um, is about domain-specific languages in practice. We've recorded it at the Code Generation 2008 conference, so you're probably not surprised that it's about languages and code generations. It's a discussion with uh, Juha Pekka Tolvanen, JP Tolvanen from Metacase. They have been doing this uh, meta language code generator stuff for years. Um, before we actually get started, let me let me just say one thing. As you probably know from past episodes of the podcast and also maybe generally from my website or something, this whole model-driven domain-specific languages thing is near and dear to my heart. So I have uh, quite a couple of opinions myself. So this episode is more a discussion between me and JP. So I sometimes cannot hold back with my own opinion. Um, I hope that's okay. Um, I couldn't resist. Um, I think it makes the discussion more interesting, but if you don't like that, if you consider me more like a normal interviewer, a journalist, then you might probably or perhaps be a little bit annoyed. Anyway, have fun with the episode and uh, welcome JP to the episode. Thank you, Richard. Great pleasure to be here. Yeah, we've, we've planned this for quite a while. Yes, yes. So JP, why don't you introduce yourself to our listeners? My name is Juha Pekka. I have been working with uh, meta modeling and uh, especially graphical languages and code generators since 1991. And we started then a company called MetaCase. And uh, we have been building these languages and generators, mostly tool support for that since then. Right. So, so what we are going to talk about, obviously, then is uh, how to build languages, how to build generators. Mm. It's this whole model driven DSL topic. And just to give you lead, reader, readers, well, I should have learned this by now. So to give you listeners a heads up about the specifics, um, we've had um, episodes on model-driven development a while ago. I think it was episodes five and six, uh, a long time ago. And we've also had other stuff on internal DSLs and meta programming. So in this episode, we want to focus primarily on some of the experiences and the practical concerns that arise once you want to scale this to, to really larger projects. And I guess that's also where 
you guys have a lot of experience. Yes. So why don't we start by briefly recapping what it's about? What is a meta model? What is a you know graphical versus textual syntax? Why don't you give us a little brief heads up how you see this world? I noticed and listened good podcast that you had earlier. And just want to basically say what kind of domain-specific languages we are working right. with. Yeah. So we are mostly applying almost always external domain-specific languages, and they scale better because there is no escape to the host language. Yep. We also focus on mostly on graphical domain-specific languages, but some are also matrix or table-based. And usually they have some embedded text naturally in, in, included yep. as well. The other key issue, what we did, well, we didn't do it in that way in the right first place in 1991, is that we have first multiple separate individual domain-specific languages. And then we figure out that usually you, we need to combine them. So another thing we do is we have multiple integrated external domain-specific languages so we can share data between models based on different languages and support group group working. So, so another way of saying that is that you support the definition of several viewpoints with separate syntaxes for the same overall model. Correct. Right. Yeah. Correct. But uh, nothing prevents to, to keep those models for different users totally, but still the modeling concepts can be ah, shared. Ah, I see. Mm -hmm. So that goes back to the repository stuff we're going to talk Correct. about in a minute. Mm -hmm. And our aim is basically, uh, why we have been successful with this, is that we always try to do a full code generation from the modeler's perspective. Mm -hmm. Meaning that if someone creates a model, then he can generate a code that is doesn't need to be any more touched afterwards. Yeah, I, I mean, we have obviously, we've talked many times and that's yes. one point where i kind of think that's hard to always do i mean yeah sure sure but there's a number of ways to do that on, on trying to reach that situation right okay the most typical is that you have other people who already develop some domain framework code additionally yeah. or you have existing platforms that yeah. are already capable for it and there's a lot of rule engines and such where you can specify the rules just mm -hmm. by graphically saying declarative manner, what kind of business rules you would like to run, how you would like to guide your telephone calls yeah. to handle like service creation. Yeah. And in those areas, it works fine. But let me let me give an example, the, the typical one, right? So if you have a state machine, it's of course easy to draw diagrams with, with, with you know, rectangles and, and of course with rounded corners mm. and uh, transition arrows. But if you have a, a guard condition, which can be any arbitrary expression mm. in whatever expression language, then I think there are only two choices. One choice is you put the expression as a string in the model, yes, which is often not that great because you have no code completion, no syntax highlighting, yes. or you, you somehow write that in some manual code snippet that you then integrate with the generated overall state machine. What's your, what's your take on that? We, we basically see even more approaches. One is, of course, is adding a string right. to, to existing model. That's uh, the last resort. Yeah, that always you works. You yeah. can do The other approaches that you, you, we know about the type of card conditions or whatever okay, they are. Yeah. So we then can then a little bit classify or type them. I see. And then they become again part of the modeling language, which, so is, which is the other extreme. Yeah. Then there's these uh, uh, middle solutions that you have already uh, implemented solutions or libraries for these typical card conditions or whatever they would be. Yeah. And then you integrate from your models to those existing Yeah. Uh, components right okay so you what you would do is you would have a library with manual manually written code with co constraints you give them names yes and you just mention the name in the model that would be one for way. example yes, yes yeah but but i mean 
I mean, now we are actually almost philosophical, right? Because what I would do mm -hmm. is I would generate some kind of skeleton, a method blah, yes. if the, con the guard condition is called blah, yes. and then I fill in the code. What you say is we, tr we first write the blah method, put it in a library, and then mention it. If, if you have existing a framework or platform, yeah. a component library, then that's usually you would like to do. You realize that there's something that multiple people would like to use, but even so you it put it there. Even if it's only one person who needs the, that. Yeah, th th then it's always possible still to, to generate the protected blocks. So you, you make oh, a code generator. You do that? Well, we, we, our tool allows to do that. Yeah. So you make a okay. code generator where you, the person who makes a generator says that yeah. card conditions are something Yeah. That we, you would like to write later on to yeah. the generated code. Yeah. So the person says that this is the block yeah. that you can change later on. Okay, so we're that actually not that far apart. No, but, <laughs> but uh, we, we don't recommend people to do no, that. Mostly because in a large scale use, so if we have external DSLs, we want to hide the complexity. Yes. We want yep. to make development easier. Yep. And we have a hundred guys who are making designs. Sure. Someone will, will not write inside the protected yeah. block. No, I agree. And you should avoid this stuff mm. and you should put as much as possible in the model and you should try to reach 100% code generation. But there are situations when you can't. And, sure. And, and then you need, you need a plan B. And I think yes, we, yes. we just outlined how yes, that would look. Yes. And there are multiple options and it little bit depends your situation, what your plan B actually looks like. Yeah, of course. Yes. But I guess I, I think I interrupted you when you were uh, talking about, I guess you were getting at this interpretation versus code generation of the tool itself. Yes, I was actually, these were two, two other bullets that I wrote here right. to me <laughs> to prepare. Sorry. <laughs> is that what we do is we, we treat the meta model, the, the language definition, DSL definition as a data. Mm -hmm. And then we don't generate tool support. We already have an existing tool that actually reads this meta model. Yeah. And then builds these specific editors uh, based on the existing metamol data, and uh, this is important for for two two things. We didn't do that in the right in, in this way in the first place, mm -hmm. and uh, we learned that uh, in in industry use, people who create these metamols they want to be sure that the language creation and language modification tasks are safe, because if they have, let's say, 100 developers who are creating models, and then they change the meta model, yep. how they may be a little bit um, worried about what will happen to the existing models. It's the language evolution yeah, problem, Language right? evolution. And then yep. we can guarantee that, look, you can change the meta model, uh, whatever you like, the tool will know what kind of changes you can do, and you can't broke others' models. Yep. So they still upload, load, you can see the models, And in, in many cases, they just update automatically to yeah. the existing models. Yeah. And just to contrast that with, for example, EMF or GMF, the problem, depending on what kind of changes you do, is that if you build your meta model in a given way and then generate, for example, Java code from it or an, an editor mm -hmm. that, that is implemented in Java and then you change the meta model, it might happen that your, that your editor slash the EMF library, whatever, isn't able to load the model anymore Correct. because the model's storage structure has been baked into the generated source code. And that, that's clearly a problem. And, and that's obviously for, for industry use. If you have a lot of models existing, we can't really go and say back to the modelers that please start again yeah. because the meta model changed. That's well, usually acceptable. You don't have to start again, but you have to, to in case of EMF, you might have to patch the underlying XMI, which is of course also ugly. Yeah, but yes. yeah. 
Okay. But basically, we try to streamline this process. That's our, our absolutely. Idea. Yeah. The other thing is, um, so did you did you finish with yeah, your? Yeah, I finished. Okay. Yes. Okay. <coughs> so let, let's go back briefly to those different viewpoints um, because that's something I found to be very very important in practice that people really specifically think about the fact that a real system is built from several different viewpoints and yes. you have typically different DSLs or different languages. One of them might <coughs> be your manually written code mm. um, that, that actually assembles the overall system. So, so can you talk a little bit about how you do this technology-wise, you know, repository and, and, and the different viewpoints and how it all works on one thing and still represents differently to different users or viewpoints? We, we basically differentiate two things. The concepts for structure, we, we call it abstract syntax, and right. also for models, and then concrete mm -hmm. syntax. They are two totally different things. Mm -hmm. And uh, it always should start from the abstract syntax. Yep. And we basically specify a meta model. But in our meta modeling language, we have a specific concepts like a language. So we can identify what you call viewpoints. We right. can identify what kind of viewpoints you would like to have. Mm -hmm. For instance, you would like to have a display view, another one would be a navigation view, mm -hmm. a persistency view or, or, or real-time view, whatever those views would yeah. be. But then we can identify different kind of modelers or model usage scenarios that we need to have this kind of language for describing static structures, another one for describing behavior structures, yet the models that are created with these two languages still share the same data. Mm -hmm. So if someone changes the data in a static view and it's applied also in, a, in, a, in the behavioral view, it automatically updates in that behavioral view mm -hmm. yeah. just to support refactoring and, and right. model, model editing work. Yeah. So in contrast, I'm always contrasting with some other tooling just to, to make the point. Yes. Um, if you did that, for example, well, um, typically, it depends on how you do it with, with, with the EMF, but classically you might have literally different models and then if you generate code you you load all of them somehow join them make sure yes. you, you 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 know you establish connections between things that actually are the same thing or that mm -hmm. reference each other and then you write a code generator that that kind of takes all of that in and 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 builds the overall system Correct. from these Correct. and things. that seems to be one interest for this model to model uh, transformations that you can combine things and you can work with them to later produce the yeah. code whereas our idea is to, to do the integration not so much on the code generation phase, but you can do it also at the modeling yeah. time. Yeah, that's actually another point where we tend to disagree a little bit, which is the the importance of, of <laughs> model to model transformations. Yeah. Yes. So you don't have them in the tool, right? You can do model to model transformations. We even do model to meta model transformations. But you can do such a things through intermediate formats of 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 such. But the, usually the, we don't have found that customers really need. So in other words, what you're doing is you you generate with a code generator the textual XML probably representation of the thing you are of the model you are trying to transform to. Yes, if you want to do that to model, yes. model there's yes. also API. Yeah. So mm -hmm. if you want to use Excel to do that, yeah. okay, you can you can use Excel and macros yeah. and and do the same thing. Okay, at the at the repository level, so you can remove data from the repository and create new models yeah okay okay if if you think that you need to have a such a kind of thing we yeah. just feel that it's better if the the things are reintegrated mm. at the modeling time because then refactoring and model working is easier yeah because we can see where the changes happen so in our situation if you see that something is changing in the data model you can see maybe already that this is shared by somewhere else yeah. and you can ask where it is 
Yeah. And then you can see another diagram where the data is, has further details. Yeah. I, I, as I said, I tend to disagree. <coughs> I tend, no, I don't disagree with what you said, but I have a lot of scenarios where model transformations are really useful. But I guess that's a topic for a, for a different episode. I'm not sure I should like put too much yes, of my but, viewpoint but, into but, this but, thing. But if we look viewpoints of a, of a consultant yeah. and a viewpoint of a tool developer, oh, sure. already their perspectives yeah. are different. So yes. consultants, of course, want to reuse yeah. existing generators if they have already done something. For example. Whereas, yeah, to, for, whereas from our point of view, tool vendor point of view, customer have already done their own code generator. Mm. Uh, they don't want to share that with yeah. their competitor. Yeah. So there is n less need to work with yeah. um, since we're discussing it already i mean one of the <laughs> one of the areas where i think it's kind of really useful is if you like if you think in, in terms of product lines if you consider mm. a, a state machine model i you always use it as an example because everybody knows it mm. um, and there is a variant of your state machine you want to be able to sell for an extra price and that variant has what i call the emergency stop feature so you have like 50 states and from each of them you want a new transition with uh, the event stop that goes to a fail-safe state. Now, how do you change, how do you get those 50 additional transitions into your otherwise manually drawn state machine model? So you want that all those state machines have a, a connection to emergency? Yes, all states in the state machine. But then, then, then I wouldn't model that at all. <laughs> right. Because everybody has that. W so you you why, would have to draw 50 lines, which is stupid. Yes. Uh, yeah. But now here's the thing: um, the generated code, if you have an execution thingy, mm -hmm. that it it has to have those things. Now you can put this into your code generator. Sure, but it could be a property of that whole state machine to say in this state machine all these states have the emergency. Yeah, but it should be that's optional. Another but it should be optional. Yeah, that's, that's the point. That, that's a boolean value in that whole state machine diagram. Will these states? has emergency property. Okay. Or each individual state could yes. have this property. And by default, that property could be, yes, a I have an emergency absolutely, state. Absolutely. But now now you set this Boolean flag to true. The, 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 your Boolean, every state needs to have the emergency. You set this to yes, true in your model. Be, yes. So now, yeah. what, uh, but you still need to generate the, the code that actually, imagine the state machine generated as a big switch case thing. For instance, now, yes. now all those 50 state cases need mm -hmm. to have this additional branch to the so how do you get it in there what you would do is basically you would say in your code generator if Correct. this boolean flag is set to true yes. then generate something else and i think that's that's a problem and the reason why mm -hmm. i think that is is um your code generator typically says something like for each state in my model generate an integer constant yes. for each state in my model also generate a case block in my switch statement and so on my point is you have this algorithmic part of the generator. In, in the generator, yes. yes. That, that iterates yes, yes, yes. over the model. Now, Correct. if you want to do your Boolean flag, then you always have the algorithmic part. And after that, you say, and also, if this thing is true, then you have this additional integer constant, the additional case block, and so on. And that complicates your generator. And if you do model-to-model -model transformation, mm -hmm. just one sentence more, what you will do is, if this Boolean flag is set to true, you take your model as it is, you with a transformation, add those 50 additional transitions, and then you just run the generator without the generator caring about the fact that there are special emergency things and without, this, without these ifs in the generator and stuff. And that's really a nice modularization. Well, uh, you get now more sentences, but... <laughs> <laughs> these were well, all commas. Well, well, <laughs> a solution for that, from our angle, would be that you realize that there are uh, these specific emergency mm -hmm. states, 
transitions, other kind of state transitions. Mm-hmm. Somewhere you have a generator who knows how to handle state transitions. Yes. So it doesn't need to be in this state, that information. You can abstract that into a common subroutine. So whenever you are generating code, it looks all the t- t- type of things for this tra- yeah. state transition. And then only in that place, you also look at emergency. Sure, but it's scattered. You have in, in a typical, you have several places where you would have to do it. But anyway, yes. Okay. So it could, could be, but then you, you could have multiple places in your code generator where you can call out call into other routines. the existing routine. So yes. the idea comes how you structure your code generator. Mm. And you can structure it many ways, per file, per section of file. Usually yep. we see most people do it, they start to structure the generator based on each domain concept. Mm-hmm, so sure. when they have a different language concept, they have one generator for each concept. Yeah. And yeah. later they may look at, well, actually this has a m- multiple commonalities with other concepts. Yeah. And then they refactor the generator. But again, it's, it's a work done by a couple of persons. Right, sure. all, all the rest modelers don't do that. So if it is hard for, if it's hard to do this emergency generator okay okay it's a hard only for one or two guys that's true that's always true and for that's the whole value here making coaching uh, making compilers also yeah but i mean hard so and, and i promise we're getting to the end of this discussion now soon but <laughs> <laughs> that i think my experience is once you once once your code generator grows mm. and once you do a lot of product line stuff where you have many of these optional features that depend that that change your code generator the complexity of your code generator becomes an issue Not an unsolvable issue, but an issue. One thing to do that, to solve, is that trying to raise the level of abstraction already with the modeling language. So you can put more rules to the modeling language and so that the code generator becomes smaller. The same thing if people have problems with generating code from pure class diagrams. Yeah, sure. Because then uh, the the person who makes a generator, it can be that half of the code generator is just checking if the input that I get from this UML diagram has the guy who created it, has it filled the properties correctly and... And and that kind of thing. Otherwise, we are generating bad things. So yeah. if we can put to the meta model the rules, to the language, the, the code generator can cut into half of the size. And I'm not saying you cannot solve some of these things <coughs> without model transformations. Of course you can. You do it yeah, and yeah, it works. Exactly. However, I'm just saying having model transformations as an additional entry in your toolkit is useful. Sure. Because in that case, the only thing you'd have to do is you write like seven lines of model transformation that adds those uh, additional emergency stop things and you don't even touch your code generator and you don't even touch your model yes. and you don't even touch your meta model. Yes, so it's, it's, it's extremely it, nice localized and that's my whole point you, you you may apply those if they make sense yes we have found out in many cases you don't need those as well it makes the process much easier also for understand and do mm. and of course many people do even the worst thing that you don't do but many people do the thing that they modify the models during this translation process yeah, the classical omg mda thing which which will never work yeah so just to clarify what what, what you were talking about is you have a, a pim Right, or, or scene, model, scene whatever, model, yeah. yeah, and you transform it into, let's say, a PSM, and then you Correct. go into the PSM, change things, add things, add addi- additional stuff, and then you continue generating. Correct. And, and that's that, a that won't bad never idea. work because it's uh, impossible to version and handle, yeah. and uh, people people don't know how, how how to deal with changes in case of they need to regenerate yeah, yeah, the yeah. PSM model. Yeah, it's it's the protected yeah, region true. problem on models. On models, correct. Yeah. So okay, um, end of uh, sidetrack. Um, what we want to do um, in the rest of this episode is we want to look at a couple of experience from your practical work mm-hmm. with real customers 
uh, you've been around for a while, so you have a couple of them. <laughs> yes. So um, we want to do two things. We want to look at a couple of example languages and then discuss why that has been successful, a couple of mm. metrics, a couple of best practices. The, the challenge with these examples is that, uh, unfortunately, the best examples are something that are done by our customers. So yeah. it's totally the IPR. Sure. So yeah, sure. they would come and kill us if we show the languages because yeah. you can see from their metamodel everything what they yeah. plan to do. Yeah, right. Yeah, so w that's why we don't... See, luckily we are in an audio medium where yes, we cannot show we anything show anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so, so the first case we're looking, here, looking at here is um, insurance stuff. And, and I find that interesting because I have worked in the insurance uh, domain also. Um, and what is interesting is that the cases I have seen... Um, was that we use textual languages. So I'm surprised or whatever um, mm -hmm. that, that it kind of is useful to use um, graphical languages in the insurance domain. So what did you actually describe with those graphical languages? Different kind of uh, financial products and okay. insurance products in this particular case. And this uh, is a broker for insurance products, providing a web portal, people can compare insurance products of different type. So mm -hmm. let's say that if I have a car and my car is at night in garage, do I get a better discount yep. for, for the thief? Yeah, right. <laughs> but, yeah. Or whatever. Um, but you're right, the same kind of uh, rules are also done in textually. Also, Capgemini has been working with, the, with something with the, with the um, pension rules, which yeah. is, again, Excel. Oh, sheet-based. Well, that was old, and now yeah, they've yeah. done intentional stuff, and of course, that's what, uh, what I was referring to. Yes, yes, yes. Okay, okay, that part, yes. <laughs> yeah. And, and they already had a domain model, the thing they call domain model, which means this is what all insurances are right. about. Yeah. yeah. And uh, for some reason, they had defined it by using a MOF. Yeah. And uh, they asked, can you then, uh, we would like now that people, insurance experts, can specify insurance products. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that they could then generate code out of the models, in this case, Java code into J2E website. And that code is used to actually execute the calculations and give people a heads up on how much they're going to get and how much they have to pay. Blah, blah, Correct. Blah. Correct. I think this is interesting because unlike many people think that this model-driven stuff is only relevant for like technical people, yes. but this is really used by domain we, experts. And, and, and to, to be totally honest here, we were also surprised yeah that uh, that once we heard that the 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 language that they they ask us to 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 co develop with them is something that they give for non technical people they yeah. give it from to insurance experts to specify I, so that's not joe insurance sa sales guy it's no. rather the experts that actually define the contract correct yeah so these are are these mathematicians or i mean these are Structured thinking people. Structured thinking people, <laughs> that's true. But not conceptual thinking people necessarily. Yes, yes. And who, who actually built the language? Did they do that? Actually, we, in this particular case, we did that for them. Okay. So they had the domain model. They have the MOF model. Right. Yeah. And they said, can you put this into a language? Yeah. And we asked them, like here, what the language should look like. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So we sure. are looking here a slide with the concrete syntax of different traffic signs. And so yeah. we ask them to specify how they yeah. would like to look at that. Yeah, yeah, because yeah. then it becomes their language. Yeah, sure, yes. And then we implemented these rules together with this Java generator. And we did that in 11 days, if I remember correctly. Mm -hmm. And it was quickly done, partly because they already had a good domain model. 
Right. So the knowledge was already there and structured. It was Correct. just about building the the UI, the oh, nice editor. Building building only the the language because yeah, building the editors and building the generators and yes. building the the concrete uh, syntax. Uh, of course, the, when they had the meta model uh, specified by MOF class diagram, it didn't have all the rules. Sure. Yes. And only later, when when you try it out with them, they realized no, you can't make a, such a thing. Our domain model don't have yeah. this rule because yeah. the domain model is just a piece of paper not something they run yeah. now they can run the domain model and then they realize that now they need to specify it correctly True. because yeah. it's executing yeah. yeah so what's interesting here is that this is a case that shows that one way of getting to a good language is that you just take the existing concepts and stuff that the domain experts already have and and formalize them into a tool correct do do you know of and that's of course somehow ideal because you already know what to do. Yes. Do do you have uh, thoughts about what other um, approaches there are to come up with a good domain language or, or DSL? Uh, we we wrote a book. <laughs> <laughs> you can plug it. We'll put it in the show notes. We we wrote a book on on this and actually a paper for software product lines a mm -hmm. couple of years ago to look how people are building languages. And one of them was that they already have established domain vocabulary, domain concepts like here. Like here. And they would like to, to apply it. Yeah. The other kind of thing is that uh, they, they, the product has a clear physical structure, like let's say a home automation <laughs> network. Stopwatch. <laughs> ne oh, net no, uh, stopwatch is another example yeah. to my mind. <laughs> that, y that you have a clear structure, let's say a battleship communication system yeah. or um, forklift in a, in a, in a yeah. lorry. You can see that okay, it has so many cylinders and so forth. Yeah. That's your language. Right. The other sort of domain-specific languages are those which are based on look or feel or hear of the system. Yeah. So like user interface, right? Dedicated yeah. languages like in a mobile mobile phone yeah. or or a diving instrument or or this kind of uh, uh, advanced watch with yeah. a, with a number of features yeah. like the stopwatch or yeah. lap time or timer or alarm or I, I was or, I was joking or, because that's your standard that's demo standard, and I've yes. seen it five million times. Yes, yes. <laughs> well we, we use the the digital wristwatch as an example because it's right. uh, everybody knows the time and everybody yeah. usually owns except Marcus owns <laughs> 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 a watch. But uh, people people know how it how it do. And yeah. you can you can build surprisingly many yeah. applications yeah. for that. Like uh, we were discussing a, a watch for for people when they're playing a chess. Yeah. They can see that how, how much each yeah. two players pre press the, yeah. the chess. Right. So you can build enormous number of different product lines yeah. like like the watch industry is doing. Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> Yeah, another another case that Christoph Czarnecki has been talking about in the episode where we interviewed him, obviously, was that you might have a framework and you want to provide a nice DSL to to configure the framework. Yes. And in that case, you would derive the language from the framework. Correct. In some sense, it's the same thing as with your forklift, <coughs> but but it's but it's now software that you derive it yes. from and not a physical device. We would call that, if I understood correctly, is that you 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 look what is your existing APIs, mm -hmm. what is your existing code, and then you abstract from there. Mm -hmm languages but there's also a uh, place to warn in this kind of situation is that uh, you may end up in this way into a language which has a low abstraction level yes. uh, but added with the rules right, to, exactly. to use that lower abstraction level and and, and christoph calls this stuff a framework specific modeling language yes. in which case the yes, low abstraction level yes, is not a problem yes. because sure, that's the whole sure, point sure, sure. Yeah. but of course in the worst place it is that for each api yes. you have one language concept which yes. which is a horrible solution but yeah. 
but maybe you can analyze that further to see what is the underlying programming model, how those frameworks are used, right. and then you can abstract further. And to come back to the model-to-model -model transformation thing, <laughs> <laughs> sorry, you can use that framework-specific or technology-specific modeling language at the bottom, and then you build your higher levels of abstraction that, mm -hmm. that, that are more domain-specific mm -hmm. and use a model-to-model -model transformation to go down to that existing one. And that makes yes. a lot of yes, sense yes, if, yes. There is, if there is a lot of very intricate coding patterns in the mm. generator, like mm. in many embedded applications, you have all kinds of pointer crap, and you know, so you, you want to abstract that layer so that it's clean, mm. and then you can generate or transform to that layer. It's another example where M2M is useful. Yes, but uh, again, there's alternative ways to of solve course. that. Just just to work with that example you mentioned, you may have a higher level language that someone specifies. Yeah. Then you change the meta model for that high level language which is more expressive power, yeah. and then it, you give it for other people. Let's say you have people yeah. who do high-level user interface specification, yeah. and they use a language and specify the behavior of the system in, in, in a general view. Yeah. Then you give that la model to the technical people who, <coughs> who analyze it further details and change the <coughs> meta model behind, which is a compliant with this earlier meta model, yeah. But then you don't do any more model-to-model -model transformation. You do use the same model, you just change the meta-model, yeah. and then people can continue with working with the same model for further details. Yeah. That's another way which, which yeah. pe people see uh, how, to, how to, to work with the models at different type of usage, with different levels of, of, yeah. of, of knowledge. Yeah. You mentioned that those insurance guys had a MOF-based uh, meta-model available. Unfortunately, yes. <laughs> yes, and I noticed your, your, your opinion there that you're not that uh, much of a, of a fan of MOF. So don't you use MOF as the M3 level, as the meta-meta model? No, no, we don't, don't. but uh, the, the problem with them, with using a MOF, was that the MOF version was changing. Mm -hmm. So even though this yeah. was done in two months, they they quickly shocked out. And now we need to start again because yeah. something has changed, which is so which is nothing to do with this whole thing, but uh, just yeah. to follow this. Right. The other thing that they had the problem with this was that then the the meta model became surprisingly complex because they wanted to include all the stuff from the MOF to the underlying language, <laughs> and we want okay. to say please, you don't need those. Yeah. But and that's a design mistake. That's, that's not MOF's fault. Yes. No. Yeah. But it guides you to do. Mm. Uh, it guides you to specify for each language concept, is this abstract, is this rude, and, and all that stuff. Yeah. Well, mm. we, we, don't, we don't use uh, uh, MOF, uh, maybe partly because we are using a, a repository-based approach to build these tools. Mm -hmm. So we defined the, the data structure, and we did our work before the before MOF, MOF yeah. and we did our work based on other tools that already worked, mm -hmm. like uh, QuickSpec or SPLCSP. PSLA, which work at 70s and 80s as a meta mm -hmm. systems. So we try to build on something what works rather than build something on uh, paper. standardized. <laughs> so what's the difference? <laughs> paper, yes. what's, except for standards versus working, what's the, con what's the, the, the difference between In, in my opinion, the MOF is pretty complex and all the tool vendors that who have tried to implement or part of that have ended up on implementing a little bit something else yeah, yeah. and they call it then maybe X MOF or whatever or MOF-like or whatever. Yeah. But we have, for instance, a specific concept of a language in yeah. our metamodel language. So we have only six concepts in our metamodel, and one of these concepts is a language. Mm -hmm. So uh, we can type people now to look how languages can be combined, mm -hmm. how we can hierarchically structure languages to have a, right. a sub-models based on different languages, which MOF doesn't guide you at all. 
Yeah, it's possible, but it doesn't guide you. That's exactly, your point. Yes. yes. Mm -hmm. With this Ethiopia uh, um, meta model that we have using, we also can guide people to do the meta models. Like, look, like, look, you have specified uh, relationships, but they are not binded correctly. Yeah. Uh, we can look at relationships, so we right. can have a connection from one object to multiple objects at the same time. So if the connection changes, we only change it one place, right. rather than drawing the line for 500 times for each, <laughs> 550 times for in each uh, emergency state, yeah. and give specific properties for these 50 lines. Yeah. But in our case, you would actually draw one line for those 50, <laughs> if you would do that way. Uh. And all the, prop all, the properties, all the properties of that line be only entered right. once. That's the point. You still have 50 lines, but they would be we, we, collected in one point at which correct. And that you we would have 50 there. line ends. Right. <laughs> right. Okay. So, so in other words, the the association. If, if you would do that theme, yeah, yes. the association would be, uh, to pictorially speaking, would be a bubble that contains all the properties, and then you connect this to n. Yes. In our, in our case, it's not necessarily a bubble. It's yeah, just how it's you how you want it to represent it. It can be just a line yeah, as of well. Of course. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So um, the next example um, is this mobile point of sale, which I really like because uh, so it's it's basically about building a, a PDA based sales application. Correct. And the language you use for defining how the application works uses the same syntax more or less as the final application. Correct. Right? Correct. The, the reason why this works is because your editor framework allows you to have really nice interactive pictures. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Yes, of course, I would like to speak about our product. <laughs> <laughs> you don't have to. I mean, you can talk about other products <laughs> yes. if you want. Well, in, in this particular case, uh, we, we basically, uh, uh, when we start to discuss how to get domain concepts of, of different time, you mentioned this framework-based approach. I also mentioned earlier this look and feel-based approach. This is an example of that, that you derive your language concepts from your view from the end product. Right. So we have here a uh, notation that looks like the running system in, in, in a mobile phone. Like widgets, combo boxes. Like widgets, exactly. And also the navigation flows. Mm -hmm. But there are also other nice things like, like um, people, rather than writing the code for, um, for this concept of uh, login, mm -hmm. so there's a login uh, application in the beginning that yeah. you need to do. Yeah. Rather than specifying the code for login, in our modeling language, there's now only one object called login. Yeah. It doesn't have any properties. Yeah. You just say that I would like to login and you add this uh, orange L rounded mm -hmm. symbol <laughs> uh, to the drawing area yeah. and then you connect to the next step, like yeah. here to the main menu structure. Yeah. That means then that you would like to have a login in your application and then go to the main menu. Yeah. And of course, to, to make sure people don't think we're doing advertising here, the point we're trying to make, I think, mm -hmm. is that... Abstraction, yes. Abstraction, that's the logging thing, that's one thing. But the other thing is that in order to get acceptance for your DSL with your users, yes. you should try to um, make sure the language uses visual syntax that is as close as possible to what they have been working with before. Correct. That's here, the UI thing. And in case of the insurance stuff with intentional... Just to, to elaborate on that, and, and Capgemini, this prototype they've publicly talked about, um, the, um, the idea was to take their existing language, which they had before in Word documents and stuff, and just formalize the language and build a tool around it. And again, so people, users, 
were working with stuff they had been working with before, but now with a much better tool and much better constraint checks and much better automation at the back end. Correct. Sometimes a very good source for 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 the concrete syntax is, is uh, the, the PowerPoints people do. <laughs> when people, yeah. yeah, many people do PowerPoints, but when they do use PowerPoints for design, then they are totally free to choose whatever design style they feel suitable for that task. Mm -hmm. And if then they realize that a number of people start to use PowerPoint similarly, mm -hmm. then obviously there's some reason behind uh, the the vocabulary and the right. way the way they specify things with PowerPoint. So in a good situation, you can take the notation from the PowerPoint and put the structure there yeah. behind your language. Yes. And then you can give it to the back for them. And then they can say, you can continue specifying your PowerPoints, but now you can also produce running uh, products. I was once involved in a in a in a project uh, in mobile phone industry where um, we built a prototype for doing something similar with, of course, other tooling, but it doesn't matter. So, and I went to this customer, and they said, you know, we, I mean, we do have quite a good understanding of our system. And he comes around, comes with this Visio file, yes. which had like 200 Visio diagrams. They had even created a their own shapes their own palette and they were specifying the requirements or they're specifying their applications by visually composing their custom shapes and these shapes of course would be box drop down button and then they took that literally once they draw the picture print it and people implemented it manually and i thought guys you can't do this why don't you generate it's exactly the same case yes. right yes Okay, um, the next two or three examples are um, basically process descriptions, right? The first one is about a voice, uh, a, 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 a voice application to yes, which you call voice it. Menu, yes. Voice menu, yes. Right, voice menu. There's two different type of diagrams. Mm -hmm. There's the high-level view for the system, and then each individual loudspeaker-looking symbols mm -hmm. are describing this other diagram in more detail. Like voice interactions. Like voice interactions yeah. and... Uh, and then the code generator basically reads the models from the top yeah. diagram and goes into the sub-diagrams to produce code out. And this is a case of 8-bit uh, uh, microcontroller. Mm -hmm. So very important for them was to, to save the memory. So it also looks if the same strings are yeah. multiple times repeated in the, in, yeah. the lives, uh, in the voice menus yeah. and then use the same uh, memory addresses for that. Uh, voice yeah. strings. Yeah. But the code that's generated uses a specific language. There's the speak things. There are primitives. Oh, of their own, yes. yes. Of their own. Yes. So it, you could argue that is one of those framework-specific modeling languages. This language already existed and you have built a nicer, more user-friendly yes. tooling on top of it. Yeah, you could say so, yes. The next example is a telecom service configuration language. And as people probably know, uh, services in telecom with all this quality of service stuff are quite complex. So what, what did you do in this case? What, what's the reason for building that language? Actually, we don't know. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Be then because, you... Because, because the customer made it all by themselves. Ah, okay. <laughs> they asked us a couple of emails and then okay. what they did. Okay. Uh, what they want to do is that obviously the writing these configuration scripts manually is uh, error-prone. Because uh, of implied because, constraints. Because of implied constraints and because they are using it in a running system. Yeah. So they want to be sure that they are configuring it correctly. And they realize that they are repeating same kind of patterns. Yep. And uh, that's the abstract to the modeling language. Yes. And then uh, having rules in that modeling language, they can be sure then that uh, the specifications they do for service configuration are correct. Yeah. At least yep. to some extent correct. Yeah. So the point was abstraction and also 
in some sense, static constraint checking. Correct. Instead of doing it, you know, putting the stuff in the ini file and watch the system crash because you did something wrong, you put the rule in the language, language. and you don't, Be you can't yes, do it yes, wrong. Yes, yes, that's also a very good use case. But many domain-specific languages has always this uh, error prevention yes. aspect. Yeah. That the earlier we we can mm -hmm. put to the rule to the language, the earlier we can prevent illegal designs or designs that lead to a poor performance yeah and then they're also cheapest to correct because right. we don't even allow them to happen and of course also um because the error messages are part of the dsl they use domain specific terminology as opposed to out of memory error yes right yes. if you crash in the in the low level system so it also makes the 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 potential errors more um convenient to for for users The next one is um, something I've, I've seen you, I think, demo, or I've seen your customer demo at the uh, Ulrich Eisenegger conference at some Correct. point, I think. Correct. It's about infotainment systems. That's your, you know, radio, video, mobile phone in the car. Yes, yes. And they are getting, uh, today, extremely complex. Yes. So the luxury cars can have up to 1,000 menus in a, yeah. in a, in a car. Yeah. So obviously someone must design them carefully, yeah. what they mean. Yeah. Uh, and uh, in this particular case, what is interesting is that There's actually a three different views, t viewpoints, like like you sure. said. Yeah, sub-languages. Sub-languages. So there's a people who are, let's say, the artists who define the layout part. Mm -hmm. What are the colors, fonts, icons, themes? So what it looks like. Yeah. Then there are other people who have another viewpoint, another metamodular language, who specify the individual displays for the system, so the, how they use the screen mm -hmm. estate. Yeah. Correctly. Yeah. And intuitively, and that information they use and specify is again applied by another viewpoint, where they are describing the interaction with the system. Yeah. And yeah. if someone now changes the 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 content part on the individual static display structures, mm -hmm. those changes can be <coughs> reflected automatically to those who specify the behavior. Yeah. So if they add something to the display, then the people who are specifying the behavior can see that mm, now we need to add new functionality because there's a new visualization available yeah, yeah. and so forth. And they do this for generating the code. Usually in automotive, uh, they, they do some uh, code generation, let's say in a browser in Java, yeah. that they can quickly prototype and try it out whether it yeah. makes sense. Simulator. Simulator. <coughs> and uh, automotive industry works today so that there's then... Uh, Uh, subcontractors, mm -hmm. first level, second level, yeah. who then do the final implementation, but basically nothing prevents to change the code generator from Java to the to the native, let's say C yeah. implementation. It's a little bit about trust. Yes, and partly maybe also the rules how the the the, the industry works. So, mm -hmm. for example, if you are generating part of the code first to Java, it works wonderfully, yeah. and then you would like to say the same system now in C, please. But if you generate the code from mm -hmm. the models that, the, let's say, the brand created, the automotive mm -hmm. manufacturer created, and then you ask subcontractors to do the implementation by using the generated code, who, who actually take responsibility of that right. generated C code, yeah. which goes to the target. Yeah. I really think um, this, this, um, this, this idea of multiple viewpoints or multiple sub-languages is kind of extremely useful. I mean, not that this is something i just noticed but it's important to communicate yes yeah okay so i guess this this was uh, or these were uh, some of the interesting examples 
I guess uh, those case studies that are publicly available, uh, we'll put links uh, to yes, them in course. the show notes. Yes. Um, is there anything else you want to say so uh, to wrap up this this thing slowly but certainly? I would like to basically mention that companies who have tried these kind of domain-specific languages say usually that there's a productivity increase is a, is a fundamental. Yep. Um, some companies say that, let's say, Panasonic wrote a work paper to the Upsla workshop that they claim to be now making same application now 500% faster. That would be five times. Five times faster. Yeah. And uh, Nokia claims that they are maybe making now product line and mobile phone, they are making it 10 times faster compared to earlier manual yep. practice. So yep. it's a huge, huge improvement. And what's so your experience in the initial investment? Because, I mean, you have to build languages, generators and stuff. Yes. <coughs> so how much, I mean, how, do, how does this stack up? How... how is there any metrics you can give? We have tried to measure, of course, right. all, all this information, what, yeah. what we have. But uh, we have also noticed that the, the circumstances or the background for the company cases are always a little bit different. So right. direct comparison is, is, is difficult. But yep. we have found out that code generator usually takes more time than making the meta model, for sure. Mm -hmm. Uh, concrete syntax sometimes take uh, more time than making the abstract. Yeah, because one, you can because polish you it until, you, yeah. Yeah, until until the end that you yeah. have a really nice looking uh, word yeah. documents generated and so forth. You can yeah. do a lot of effort there. Yeah. Most of the time, companies seems to have with with the underlying frameworks. So if they have a product line which is actually a copy of the earlier product, then it's more difficult to apply code generators mm -hmm. if, if the if the basis and the foundation is not. Yep. Not there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But if companies have already realized that we have a reusable components, yeah, we have a reusable pieces of of of, of or we have a component factories, a team who do common yeah platform yeah, pieces. A platform team is always suspicious. Yes, yes. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> then 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 there's a there's a good chance. Yeah. But because of these uh, quite a huge productivity increase or even uh, academically proven cases, yeah, uh, my my summary would be actually for people to try out of different yeah. tools yeah. and try to outbuild domain-specific languages and take the low-hanging fruits first. Right. Yeah. So pick those cases where you can show immediate benefits, even though you may feel that they are too small mm -hmm. and you would see more interesting yeah. thing to tackle. Right. You can do that later. Yes. When Once you, you convince when, when management. When you convince your colleagues oh, yeah. who yeah. don't believe that you can generate code yes. or you can convince your managers yeah. That they see, wow, this gave a good return of investment. Yeah. Let's let's use this more. Yeah. So easy case first, yeah. and then if there are help from people, uh, or discussion groups, yeah. uh, or even tool vendors or consultants, feel free to use those. That's right. That they provide such a service, especially consultants. <laughs> yes. Yes. I understand <laughs> your point. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So JP, thank you very much for being on the show. I think it was an interesting discussion. Okay. Th thank you. It was a pleasure to be here. Thanks for downloading and listening to Software Engineering Radio. Software Engineering Radio is an educational program brought to you by Hillside Europe. If you want more information about the podcast and all the other episodes, visit our website at se-radio.net. If you want to support us, you can donate to the SE Radio team via the website. Or you can advertise for SE Radio, for example, by clicking on the Dick Reddit Delicious and Slashdot buttons. To contact the team, please send email to team at se-radio.net or if it is specific to an episode, please use the comments facility on the website so other people can react to your comments. 
This episode of SU Radio as well as all other episodes are licensed under a Creative Commons 2.5 license. Please see the website for details. Thanks to Charlie Crow and the Podsafe Music Network for the music used in this show. The song is called Vegas Hard Rock Shuffle.